sporting and cultural exchanges, people-to-people exchanges, these are tremendously important to break down barriers and build bridges and, dare I say, new friendships. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, the show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, real estate developer and philanthropist, Sylvan Adams. When it comes to philanthropic innovation, there are few who can compete with Sylvan Adams. Born in Quebec City, Sylvan spent 25 years running Iberville Development. It's one of Canada's largest real estate companies, which his father Marcel founded in 1958. In 2015, after stepping down from Iberville, Sylvan moved halfway across the world to Tel Aviv, where he began his second career in philanthropy. And in Israel, Sylvan has become very well known for his particular form of cultural philanthropy. Among various efforts, he brought Madonna to perform when Tel Aviv hosted Eurovision, he donated to Space IL, Israel's first mission to space, and he orchestrated bringing the bike competition Giro d'Italia, second only to the Tour de France, to Israel for its grand start. Sylvan's perspective on cultural philanthropy is unique. He believes that Israel should be known for more than its complexities, that it should be seen by people outside Israel as the country he knows it to be. What inspires me the most about him is his innovative approach coupled with his absolute commitment. We began our conversation talking about his father's journey. Marcel sadly passed away in 2020 at age 100, but his life was nothing short of miraculous. Born in Romania, he survived the Holocaust in slave labor camps. He escaped in 1944, taking a boat to Turkey and then a train through Iraq and Syria to make it to British Mandatory Palestine, where he fought in the 1948 War of Independence. Eventually, he made his way to Canada. And there, as part of a small Jewish minority in Quebec City... The family business was animal hides, and they were peddlers. So my father sought out employment in the same field that he knew. And he goes to work for dealer in animal skins uh, by the name of Buschenbaum. And my father, who was Abramovich, it was a great, great find for Buschenbaum because he knew the business. He was super fast in arithmetic, so he could do math in his head. And most importantly, he spoke French. All of their clients were French-speaking, so he would hear my father calling their clients. And in those days, you had to pay long distance. And he heard my father each time spelling his name. A, B, R, A. And and he said, okay, listen, listen, stop, 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 stop. Your name is too long. You're costing me a fortune in long distance bills. From now on, (laughs) your name is Adams. And he picked this Anglo-Saxon name, which is so funny. Uh, He didn't say Abrams or something like that. He said Adams. So my father went and legally changed his name, and I was born Adams. Do you remember as a child dreams of what you're going to be when you grow up? Actually, I thought I was going to pursue a career in medicine. I went to the University of Toronto. I studied science. That was my passion. At some point, none of the four children wanted to accompany my father in his business. And he never led us in any direction. But I realized it was a real pity that my father didn't have an heir. And my father always saw me as his heir. He thought I was the one who was business-minded as opposed to my siblings. Why is that? 
Uh, because I used to do some entrepreneurial things. From the youngest age, I will tell you the funniest thing. My mother would give me uh, candy bars for recess. And uh, rather than eat them, I would sell them, sell them in, in the schoolyard <laughs> and make money. So my father was completely amused by these things. So he kind of always saw me as the more business-minded of his children. And I ended up getting an MBA and joining my father in business. Can you tell us a little bit about Iberville? Sure. What was, you know, your father created? My father worked for Mr. Buschenbaum. And uh, at the synagogue, there was a, a notary. Notaries do the land transactions. And there was a notary who had a deal. And it was to build up uh, some duplexes. He had the land. He had the builder. And all my father had to do was put up the money and then go and find tenants. And he did it. As my father likes to say, it was a miracle that everything went right and he didn't lose all of his money. But he, was, he succeeded and he filled the thing and he sold it. And then he built another one and another one and another one. And he thought he was uh, a man in his 40s at that point. He thought, you know, I'll do a few more of these and I'll retire. <laughs> so my father was doing this on weekends and evenings. That's why we never saw him, of course. He was determined to succeed. And uh, Bush and Brom had promised him partnership. And at the end of the year, he gave him a kind of a bonus check. And my father, who knew how to calculate better than Bush and Brom, he knew he was getting ripped off. And he was totally insulted. And he quit. He quit his very, very fancy, high-paying job. He said, you know what? I'm going to go into the real estate business. Because we're talking about the 50s. He might have been the first professional real estate developer in the city of Quebec. How was working with your father? Uh, it was um, interesting. <laughs> My father was a doer, not a teacher. Here's what you're going to do. Take care of this without much instruction. And you had to kind of fly by the seat of your pants. I will always say my father was a better businessman than me. He was a better entrepreneur. I was more of a planner, much better administrator, much more interested in having a game plan. Uh, we were completely different. But when we were together... These were very productive years. As a matter of fact, when we worked together, we were fabulous together. In my late 30s, I became the CEO of the company, and eventually I bought the company huh. from my entire family. Thereafter, my father worked for me. Huh. And uh, what was interesting is um, we had quite a number of arguments along the way. <laughs> yeah, I, I won all of the arguments because I was right. Always? I, I, basically, if I, if I was, yes, yes, I would have to say that I was right. My father grew up in a different era. I used to spend time uh, working on uh, making sure that leases and, and uh, other documents were, were precisely done. And my father used to say, why are you wasting your time with that stuff? And he just, he came from a different era where business was done on a handshake. So I'm all for business being done on a handshake. And I, I'm very much a big believer in, in doing it. But it's good to have the document there as well. We had disagreements. My father had philosophies. For example, when he first started, he couldn't afford anything. So he had a, a philosophy, don't buy vacant land. He used to say it eats three times a day. In the morning, it eats interest. In the afternoon, you have to pay realty taxes. And for dinner, the city sends you a, a letter that you have to mow the lawn or keep the maintenance and all the rest of it. For his era, he was right. For my era, he was wrong. And I made a lot of very strategic land investments and they worked out very well. Did he ever admit he was wrong? He would acquiesce 
which was a tacit admission rather than really uh, him saying, you know what, remember when we argued about this, you were right, no. And then, you know, I knew, I knew he was on board. I didn't get irritated, that was my dad. He was not high on giving praise. So he never said, listen, good job, or that was brilliant, or that whatever you did. He, he never, never, never told me such a thing. But I knew in speaking to his friends, he said, you know, your dad is so proud of you. He never stops talking about you. So I knew from them uh, that my dad actually was quite pleased with me, but never directly from him. You met your wife in a kibbutz in Israel. What brought you to Israel? And I, I can't like really picture you Uh, milking the cows. So what's the story of the kibbutz? You know, I didn't milk the cows, but I picked the oranges. After I finished my university, I realized that this was probably the last opportunity I would have to travel before joining the rat race. In those days, you could buy an open airline ticket that had no specified return date. And I bought a one-year open ticket and I came back on the 365th day I started in Europe and I traveled all over the place. And as the weather got colder, I just kept moving more and more and more south and ended up in Israel. I wanted to have the real authentic experience of the kibbutzim, purist, commune style. <laughs> I met my wife, who's a British uh, volunteer on the kibbutz, within the first week. And uh, I like to say I was kind of struck by lightning. I'd never met a person like this. We were nearing the end of our trip and I knew I had this deadline 365 days, I had to be home. And I said, listen, what do you think about joining me in Canada? She said in her, in, with her British accent, she said, certainly not. <laughs> and uh, I was stunned, I was stunned, I was shocked. And she left a sufficiently long pause and she said, unless you marry me. <laughs> so, She wanted to see that I was a serious person. Marriage was the furthest thing from my mind. How long have you known her at this point? Three and a half months, but very intense months because, you know, on a kibbutz and it wasn't like, you know, you see each other once a week for a date. It was intense. She eventually left for England and I joined her a couple of weeks later. I flew to London. She picked me up at the airport. We took the subway to come back from the airport And she says, um, okay, so we're, you know, we're getting married on Thursday. <laughs> I've published, I didn't even know about these things. You have to publish the wedding bands. I don't know if you've heard of this, but in England, you have to allow a period of a week. And if nobody objects, you're allowed to get married. So she had done all this preparatory work. And I, again, I, I thought she was kind of kidding. This was my only option. This was the way I was going to get her to Montreal, this love of my life. So yes, once she told me we were getting married... And you know, when I landed in, in London, there was no going back. I had given my word. So, uh, yeah, with two witnesses in order to make it legal and one gatecrasher, all of whom were friends of Margaret, we exchanged our vows and, and we've been married now 38 years. In 2015, you made Aliyah. Why did you make Aliyah? I came home on a cold, dark Montreal winter's evening. And I said to Margaret, my wife, what do you think about moving to Israel? And she said two things to me immediately. She said, let's do it. She said, it'll be an adventure. And secondly, I always thought we would end up there because that's where we had met. She was right on both counts. It has been an adventure and it's almost like destiny brought us here. 
gives us a real sense of purpose. And it's a different chapter of life. And uh, I'm devoting this chapter to trying to do good works for our beautiful country. I came here with a purpose. People ask me, did you know you were going to do it? Yes. I may not have known about this specific project or that specific project, but I knew I was going to come here and I was going to make a difference and I was going to do it on a large scale. What was your vision? We get a very bad rep abroad. And so I wanted to do projects which showed off the real Israel, the Israel that I know, the Israel that every first time visitor to Israel experiences and says, wow, I didn't know that Israel was like this at all from the media coverage, what I call normal Israel, and reach what I call the silent majority. Apolitical people who live abroad, who don't know Israel, who don't particularly care about Israel, but if you push them and ask them an opinion, it'll probably be negative because of the constant drumbeat of monochromatic news cycle, news that come from this part of the world. And I wanted to do projects that showed off what I call normal Israel to the rest of the world. Can you share one project so that my does first, that? My first big one was the bicycle race called the Giro d'Italia. Everybody knows the Tour de France. It's the biggest race in cycling. But the second biggest race in cycling is the Giro. I like to tell Americans, for example, the biggest televised event in the United States is the Super Bowl. How many people watch the Super Bowl? Well, worldwide. I'm assuming it cannot be more than 300 million. So it's 115 million. The Tour de France has 2 billion. The Giro has a television audience of a billion TV viewers. Bicycle racing is the second most watched television sporting event after soccer. It's as simple as that. Every two years, they try to host the first three days. They call it the big start in a neighboring European country. It started once in Monaco. It started in Holland. It started in uh, France. It started, it started in various European countries, but it had never been outside of Europe. And I convinced the Giro to come and do the big start in Israel. And because Israel is such a small country, in three days, we could be the Giro of all of Israel. And... To tell you that it works, the Giro took place in 2018. Between 2018 and 2019, Israel tourism growth was the highest in the world, 38%. And I know wow. that you know, showing off the country to such a large, large audience was definitely beneficial. And we had a billion first-time visitors via their TV screens. But if we can have physical visitors, this changes the whole narrative. People ask me, did you know that it was going to be such a smashing success? I say, absolutely, on the foreign side. But here's the surprise that I got, the most beautiful surprise. Israelis also don't know cycling. And yet, we had a million Israelis go into the street and cheer the race. Everyone had a good time. Everyone enjoyed I get stopped in the street even today for people to tell me, kolakavod for bringing the Giro to Israel. That is absolutely amazing. I remember the Giro, but I do want to stop you and ask you how you made it happen. You had to convince the government to go along. You had to convince the Giro organizers to come to Israel, and they've never been outside of Europe. And you had to convince foreign bikers to come here. So how did you actually make this happen? The first time I mentioned it to Mauro Veni, the general manager of the Giro, he laughed. He thought I was joking because no Grand Tour had ever left Europe. I invited him here. 
And he saw that things were exactly as I described, that we are a normal country and safe. And we did have a bit of a cycling culture. I took him to the countryside, the Judean hills, filled with riders, including myself, by the way. And as soon as he saw the fact that we were a normal country, the fact that we did have a bit of a cycling culture here, he could start to see the marketing angles. And I explained to him, listen, Israel makes news. At that time, that we were the 101st edition of the Giro. It was the most successful in their 101 years because Israel makes news. And we were covered in CNN, not in the sports section, in the main news section, in the New York Times front page. The Giro never gets into American news, but because it was taking place in Israel, we have so many reporters here, they want to write things. Usually they have to write negative things, but here they had something positive to write. Convincing Maraveni, I just needed to bring him here. Convincing the government of Israel. Now that's interesting because I wanted them to do the project. I'm an Oleh Hadash. I'd been in the country, you know, uh, what, a couple of years. I'd never put on events like this. I'm a real estate guy. I thought I'm going to deliver this gift to the Israeli government and they're going to do it. And I said, because I believe in it so much, I tell you what, I'll put up 10% of the money. I went to various members of the government of the day. As soon as I mentioned things like a billion TV viewers, everybody could see it right away. But I don't know how much they really sort of believed entirely what I was saying. I went from minister to ministry. I was like the human ping pong ball. No, go see that guy. No, go see that guy. So I, I, I ended up seeing like, I don't know how many ministers in the government until I got to the minister of sport, Miri Regev, and she says to me, Sylvan, it's very nice, but we're not going to do it. You have to do it. At that point, I had realized, wow, uh, she, she's probably right. In the end, I did get the government of Israel to contribute. But remember my 90-10? Well, it became 10-90. So, um, <laughs> and finally, the teams. So this is very interesting because in the run-up to the Giro, this is pre-Abraham Accords, I had reporters say, you know, there's a team from the UAE and there's a team from Bahrain. Do you think they're going to come to the Giro? Because of course, you know, we didn't have relations with them. And I said, of course they're going to come. It's the Giro. And sure enough, they came because it's the Giro. It's the second most important race in the sport. And of course they came. Nothing happened. It was peaceful. It was wonderful. And it was one of the early building blocks in terms of building confidence pre-Abraham Accords. So I remember you also told me the story that you were going to bike in the UAE before the Abraham Accords were signed. Can you tell that story? I own Israel's first professional cycling team. And because we are in the world tour, there is a bicycle race called the Tour of the UAE. They were obliged to accept us in the race. And we are obliged to race in. And again, I remind you, with Israel is the first name of the team. And there were kids, little, little Emirati kids, waiting in line to get autographs signed with the word Israel. And again, their leaders saw this and nothing happened. On the contrary, we were welcomed. And we were welcomed to ride in the streets of the UAE with our name Israel on it. By the way, I was privileged, very privileged and honored to be invited to Washington at the signing of the Abraham Accords. The Americans recognized that those types of activities that I've just described to you broke down barriers and gave the leaders, firstly the Bahrain and then the UAE, gave them the confidence. Sporting and cultural exchanges 
People-to-people exchanges, these are tremendously important to break down barriers and build bridges and, dare I say, new friendships. A few quick questions that I ask uh, all of our interviewees. What's the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? Oof, most people who don't know me at all? You know, I guess they think I'm some sort of a fancy guy and I really am not. I walk on the Tayelet. Uh, I ride a tustus uh, in the streets of Tel Aviv. I'm a pretty relaxed, approachable person. People ask me for sometimes for selfies. I always say yes. I'm thrilled to make a positive impact on people's lives. What are you most optimistic about? I am enthusiastic about engaging with the worldwide Jewish community and showing them the beauty of our common path together. So what's a piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? It depends which journey. I mean, I've taken several journeys in life. My current journey is a philanthropic one. And honestly, I don't really need any advice on that because I, I came in with a vision and I know that it's working and I know I'm doing something that's never been tried before. I, I had a very clear view of what it is that I wanted to do. Sylvan Adams, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure, Gil, and uh, come, come back and visit us here in Israel. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and later on, see you next time.